This is the Auto Body Podcast, presented by Clarity Co. We'll get stories and talk to people from all over the industry. Painters, body guys, manufacturers, and anybody in between. Let's do it. Welcome to the Auto Body Podcast. Auto Body Podcast. Presented by Clarity Coat. Now, here's your host, Adam Huber. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have Jason Mosley, the CEO of Ibis Worldwide on today. I'm very excited for this because you're actually the second person in a row that we've had on that's international. Um, we've had three people internationally on. So very, very glad to have you on. He's coming all the way from Spain. Um, so Jason, how are you doing today? I'm good, Adam. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, I can't wait to uh, to chat to you today. Perfect. Well, hopefully it goes better than the previous intro did. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. So Jason, um, can you kind of tell me what young Jason was like? Like, were you always into cars? Were you, how did you kind of get interested in the whole auto body field? Yeah, it's, it, that's a great question, Adam. I mean, when I when I when I was at school, I guess you know, and I was sort of in the school in, in in school, and when I started to think about started to think about career, it would have been sort of mid eighties, um, and you know, that's even then at that time, you know, automotive repair and automotive all cars and automotive wasn't really a, a career people were you know uh pushing you into around that time it was you know it's big business you know it was wall street wasn't it you know it's the red braces business it's commerce and and i, and I sort of although i'd always got an interest at home in, in cars you know really i was pushed down the route of you know you need a, you need more business background you need to be a more commercial person that's how you're going to get your success so consequently you know i i stood i studied uh, a lot of business related things rather than more more engineering related things in my early part of my career but i i found out that really didn't give me the satisfaction so what i did as i got to sort of um 17 18 i i, I switched uh and then i actually went to study automotive engineering um mm. at uh, at a coventry university in the uk and, and at that time uh, for those people who don't know coventry in the uk was really the home of the uh, of the car um, manufacturing and, and car design and development. You know, big companies there like uh, Rover, Land Rover, Range Rover, um, Rover itself. Peugeot had a big plant there. Jaguar, really? Jaguar's home was Coventry. Mm. Um, so you know, it was. Um, um, it was a real hotbed of a place to be, and the university tapped into that resource. So I was really lucky that, you know, as part of my studies, I got to to sample the, the more uh, touchy feely side of, of automotive. But for that part, it was more on car design, car manufacturing that I studied, and I, and I graduated with a, a good degree from there. Uh, and, and basically, when I started my working career after university, I. I went into what they call the first tier supplier business of automotive manufacturing. It's basically working with the big companies um, that supply the major components to build the vehicle. Mm. Um, so I was involved in design and development of a lot of different things like seating systems, um, 
uh, noise vibration and hardness systems, the way they were manufactured, the quality control of them all. So very engineering related to do with car design, car building. And um, that's what that's I did that for about uh, 15 years, Adam. And I, I, I worked for a Swiss company, German company, uh, traveled a lot around Europe, gradually moved up the career ladder. Uh, and got some quite senior positions managing global projects. One of my famous projects I remember was um, managing the uh, the whole in, uh, um, the majority of the interior platform for what was then the new Mini. They just mm. BMW uh, had just um, had just launched the brand new Mini um, after so many years of the old Mini, uh, and I worked on the team. Uh, I added up the team in, in one of our supplier, one of uh, our big Swiss supplier that supplied a lot of the interior systems for that. So that was that was really exciting. But I'd done that sort of that's typically that sort of thing for about 15 years, and then I decided to look for a bit of a change. And then, ironically, I came across uh, I was approached by uh, Headhunter, and uh, it talked to me about this company called Thatcham. Um, and, and Thatcham in the UK is the Motor Insurance uh, Repair Research Centre. Uh, and basically, it, it's an organisation funded by uh, the insurers to uh, undertake research in the aftermarket to make sure cars are safer for the insured driver by various means, by crash testing them, by involved in lobbying uh, and working with vehicle manufacturers, uh, but also developing uh, repair procedures, uh, repair solutions, training people. So everything to do with the asset of a vehicle that needs to be repaired after an accident. Uh, and Thatcham, and I was the CEO there, the chief operating officer. So I got involved in in all that stuff, right at the heart of it. And that was quite a it's quite a change for me because before that, I'd only ever seen the motor vehicle as something that was built on a production line, and then it let, got sold to a customer and left the factory gate. So I never knew this aftermarket world of things like service and repair and crashing. And it was, it was a real, it was a real eye-opener for me. But I really enjoyed it. I really got into that, and you know, did a did a lot of things at at, at Thatcham. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about some of those things as we uh, as we go on. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of curious. Okay, so if you were more engineering oriented, and you know, had kind of that eye, what what was your what was your first vehicle? Like what? What did what did young Jason buy for his first vehicle? Yeah, I had I had um, I had a in Europe it's called the, it was called the Ford Escort. It was a Mark yeah. II Ford Escort, um, and I think if I remember, the stereo was more powerful than the engine <laughs> in that car. Yeah. yeah, we we actually got the Escort over here um, for quite a while. I don't I, I don't know when it discontinued. Um, I think the focus went in place of the escort if i remember that, correctly over i here. think that's i think that's right i think well there was the mark one the mark two then there's i think there was the mark three then wasn't there uh, yeah. i think wasn't the mark three possibly the mark three or mark four i'm a bit sketchy on my history there mark three or mark four was the final one and you're right i think the focus took that slot didn't it in yep. the in place of the escort yeah well see 
I, I, I can't answer assuredly on this because I was born in 89. So <laughs> that's what we're talking about. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not too up on yeah, that. Th <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, Adam. That's made me feel really great you mentioning that, yeah. <laughs> hey, you uh, you look young. You're probably only like 35, 38, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish, I wish. Um, so, uh, but an Escort, yeah, I mean, that's not a bad first car. Um, it's But anyways, uh, past that, what what was it about automotive engineering that kind of scratched your itch over the other kind of engineering? Was it purely just because it was cars and that's yeah, what you were into and everything? I, I think so. And I, I, I think the idea was that you could, you know, the way things, I guess that's all engineering, but particularly for me with cars, I guess to, to bring all these complex things together and make something that, to really make something that, that wasn't there before. Mm -hmm. um, and that the, the, there was... You know, at my time, it was really, we talk about mobility now in a completely different way, but in, in that time, you know, it was, you know, the motor vehicle was changing lives. It was changing the way we live. Um, and and to, to be part of that was something that I, I really wanted to be involved in. Yeah. Uh, so you said that one of your biggest accomplishments or one of your most notable ones was the, um, was the Mini Cooper. Now, was this the redesign um, yeah, that the we new, kind the, of that we kind of the one you've got now? Yeah, the okay. one now is obviously it's had several iterations and facelifts, but essentially it's the new one rather than the the mini from the fifties and sixties. Yep, yep. So you're responsible for that giant tachometer that's that's front and center. <laughs> not quite. No, <laughs> or, not, or... Not, I was it, it wasn't the dash. It wasn't the dash area. It was the seating. The, oh. the interior trim, everything. A lot of the th what a lot of people might not realize is a lot of that. What looks in a vehicle is all very nice. The seats, the carpets, the headlining. They also have a very very important function um, mm. round about noise, uh, noise absorption, um, and they so they have two functions. Obviously, they have to look nice and make the vehicle look attractive inside, but they have a function that. It, um, helps you your your driving experience you know and how comfortable it is sound levels decibel levels vibration levels in the vehicle and all those things come together to to create that you know that 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 nice driving experience that that um, comfortable driving experience what was it what was it like when you got to drive that final product for the first time which i'm guessing is like a multi-year um, endeavor like uh, how, how, about how long did it take for that about for three that process? And a, well, from, from sort of design sort of early design phase probably about four years hmm. you start and working on that stuff the concepts of it yeah what what was it like when you finally got to drive it well when you first got so so we, we, were, we were building so the way the car's built now it's generally built and that this was the I'd say when I got involved in that sort of stuff, it was probably the start of this concept, which was modularizing stuff. So before cars were built, you'd send all the all the components to the factory and you put all the components together. Then the vehicle manufacturers start to realize, look, we've got some qualified suppliers that we want to build. Let them build modules. Like they can send us the whole seat system. We just bolt it in. So this was really the, so I'd say it's probably the start of that sort of philosophy now. I mean, now it's even more, more you know, it's pretty much developed. I mean, a, a car manufacturer now, manufacturing, I would say, is a stretch of the term. 
you know, they're, they're actually all they're doing is, you know, basically putting a Lego set together. That, that's that's what they do. You know, they're an asset. They're an assembler. They, they're manufacturing very little. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was the start. It was the start of that journey. So when when you see all these components, when I got first went down to to the, to, to the mini factory, to see to see your product you've been working on in in isolation or in prototypes, then you actually go and see it fitted on the production line and see the end product come off. Everything comes together then, right? You see all the decisions and all the things and all the project meetings and, and everything just comes together at that moment. You say, yeah, I can understand now why we had that harsh discussion about that feature or, you know, the quality wasn't right on that because now you see it in the context, that it, it, its usage context, why it's so important. Mm. Uh, okay, so moving on to Thatcher. Now, obviously our largest listener base is in the is in the u.s um yeah so can you kind of give an i mean you kind of already explained thatcher a little bit but it's basically there to guide and be... so thatcher, thatcher is similar thatcher. to icar icar okay you know icar gotcha. yep yep that's the that's the best reference i can give it's pretty pretty uh pretty similar to icar gotcha okay so um was this uh something that they were starting to build out uh when you came on or was that it, was it something it started, that was already kind of it, it started it started in the late 60s Thatcher. oh wow um because it's when the insurers the insurance industry realized that you know even in that late 60s cars were starting to get more complex repair costs were starting to rise there was a complexity being introduced and the insurance said, we need to get a grip of this. What are we going to do? And there was a study done. Um, there was a study done that recommended to the insurers that they need to take control of this and set up their own research facility. And hence Thatcham was in a nutshell. That's, that's why Thatcham was born. Hmm. Interesting. So when you were, how long were you a part of Thatcham then? I was there from 2002 till 2010. Oh, okay. So, so eight, eight, pretty, eight years. Yeah, yeah, a pretty decent run. What was um, what was some of the more notable things that you guys tackled or saw at Thatcham? Yeah, I mean, there was quite a few things that happened in in, in that time. Um, one of the one of the the big developments in that time that we saw was um, we started to see the introduction of mixed materials in in vehicle design and vehicle build so before that you mentioned the ford focus you know if we take a step back before then you know you let's take let's use ford as an example right i think certainly in europe uh you had uh i think you had the fiesta the cortina the sierra and the granada there was like five cars that was it you know Uh, and they were all they were just steel cars you know one was just a bigger version of the other and then, you know, in this period, we started to see, well, you know, different level, different models, different variants, but the drive for fuel efficiency and reduced emissions started to come in for safety, crash worthiness. So we started to see the use of high strength steel. We started to see the use of aluminiums. Very early on, smaller usage of, of carbon fiber. We saw bumpers, bump uh, fenders change from the thinner traditional to the bigger 
plastic taking up the front end of the vehicle. So, you know, the whole the whole approach to repair was starting to change because mixing materials means different joining procedures and different methods of repair. And I think one of the first things that came across my table was we're at an inflection point here where old ways of doing things just ain't going to cut it anymore, repairing a car. And that at that time was more about if you have an accident and you don't repair it correctly because it's more complex in terms of the materials it had, what's going to happen in a second accident? Is the car going to perform the same? Is the, you know, how's the crashworthiness? Is it going to meet the same standards? Is it going to protect the occupants? Uh, and as well, starting to see airbags emerge, you know, will they deploy in the right way? So it was a start, I'd say, it was quite an exciting time because it, it was a start of, of the repair industry and the insurance industry understanding the change that's come in. And since then, you know, I'm sure we'll get onto that. You know, we've seen, we've seen other step changes now in terms of technology and the need for repair, et cetera. But that was, that was quite an interesting point. And around that, what we, what we worked on was better repair procedures for the market, delivering them more digitally, um, talking about there isn't one size fits all repair. It was vehicle specific repair methods, improving the way they were researched and delivered. Um, so that was a, that was a notable change that I was involved in that I remember uh, remember coming. And sort of sitting alongside that, some of the other team members at Thatcham were, were probably a bit more heavily involved in that than me, but um, we started to see the need for crash ratings of cars. Uh, the NCAP rating started to emerge where cars were rated for crash safety, protecting the occupant. It was used as a consumer uh, consumer information that you buy a car that performed the best. It had certain star ratings, whether that be for the, the driver, the occupant, even pedestrian. Um, so, um, so we started to see that come in as well. But I think that the, the biggest, the biggest thing that I was personally involved in right at the heart of was there was a market demand that standards need to improve in repair. Uh, we needed to sort the wheat from the chaff. We needed to have some common industry standards that were that were independently assessed and audited, that we knew which body shops were capable and had the had the quality to repair this changing landscape of vehicles. So the biggest project I was probably involved in, which was a big project because it wasn't it was it was about changing hearts and minds and cultures was the development of um a national um standard with an audit program for body repair hmm. when when you were at thatcham and you're coming out with these crash ratings and everything like that um you know, the U.S. has its versions of crash ratings and safety ratings, and then you have the European standard um, and so on and so forth. Are you getting a lot of calls and pressure and messages from OEMs like Ford, GM, um, stuff like that saying, you know, hey, like, this is the way we do it in the U.S. Why are you guys, um, why are you saying that 
this is more important than this or why are you rating it a little bit more critically than over here or anything like that did you get any feedback like that not so much really i think because each of each of the um each of the oems take forward for example then you know they they have they have quite a a competent local organization and they've learned to work with different market um requirements over the years so they know that they they have to have a team that serves the european market if if their standards are different for vehicle homologation for example so so they pretty much know that um i think what was refreshing is that, that the world seemed to come together certainly certainly the more developed world europe and the us to to sort of unify what was uh, what was needed and, and and what what needed to happen um uh, and and around you know the, the the classic we had the the classic that was big it was going back even longer than you know to 20 20 plus years the insurance industry did develop a low speed uh, a low speed crash test um that that would basically what they call would rate the vehicle in terms of its where you need to underwrite your policy depending on the 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 level of damage at this standard the standard crash test would give you a level of damage parts prices would be evaluated so basically the cost of repair of, a, of this standard crash and that would give you what what was then called the group rating um and it would give you your insurance group rating where insurers could then use that along with other data to decide where they were going to price a policy particularly of that vehicle so so basically if 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 a, a 30 kilometer um standard crash test this vehicle you know a ford focus costs twice as much as a you know um a, a general motors vehicle then you know, the, the insurer has to price the policy accordingly so so that's mm -hmm. when we started to you know to see standards coming in about insurance and crash repair and you know it's moved on a pace again since then yeah the i remember I mean, this is when you're talking about 08 and everything like that. And, you know, around those years, this is when I started to really kind of get um, interested in cars. And that's where my drive and everything kind of came from. And I remember back then, and it's still kind of true to today, but I would say that it's much closer than it, than it was back then, where it really seemed like the European cars and market was really driving forward safety uh, yeah. more than American type. That's vehicles. right. That's right. Um, that was always kind of interesting um do you have any insight as to why that might be like um why the europeans seem to care more about that um i don't think that's the case anymore uh yeah not, not anymore you know, no no it, they, they, they come together um why was that at that time i don't know i i think it was a, a lot of it was driven the europe the europeans value life more than we did back then <laughs> Well, I, I, can't, I can't comment on that possibly, but, uh, um, but what I can say is, you know, a lot of this came out of the, you know, the, Germany, for instance, in Europe was a strong, you know, Mercedes, BMW, uh, and also the Swedish, you know, with Volvo. Volvo had always been a pioneer in safety, you know. I think yeah. Volvo invented the seat, uh, Volvo invented the seatbelt in the car, so they've always been leading edge, and they were one of the first they were one of the first to come out to, you know, they put on their mission statement. They, they don't want anybody to die in a Volvo. You know, their mission was as safe, as safe as possible. So I think, and I, and I think it was a lot to do with this, what we call this Euro NCAP rating, this, this consumer group that 
outside of the technical aspects of the government, you have to homologate a car in Europe, has to meet government standards. But outside of this, this Euro NCAP thing that evolved, which was a consumer-focused thing about crash safety, etc., I think that that did definitely drive a focus uh, a focus on, on on safety for sure on, yeah, on the way vehicles are designed. If you're, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's probably the same way in the UK as it is. Uh, well, I should say just Europe in general, as it is over here. But over here, women are the ones that are making most of the household decisions. Um, the buying power most of the time comes down to the woman. And what better way to sell more cars than to tell a new mom, hey, this car is significantly safer than this one. Um, now, obviously, that doesn't mean like Volvos are necess necessarily going to fly off the lot um, because there's obviously still personal choice and everything that gets involved in that. But, I mean, I would imagine that's probably one of the first things that a new family or a new mom looks at is going to the um, that group, checking to see, well, I'm kind of looking at a Ford Focus, and then it gets a, um, do you guys score it one to five type of thing or like good, mm. better, best or whatever type of thing? Um, sees a focus is like <laughs> bottom barrel in safety, but then she could go over and get a you know Peugeot for, and it's significantly safer for around the same cost. That's a that's a pretty significant um factor in w determining why you would want to buy that car over the other. Yeah, one. when and when you see, you know, we did a lot of crash testing at that time as well, and and still, and, you know, the market still does a lot of that stuff. Um. When you see a, a, an older generation vehicle crashed against a more the, the different the difference in you, you know even even back in the even as we got in those mid two thousands to you know you you know crashing those cars against the vehicles that were early eighties late seventies you know the difference was the difference was you know incredible. Yes. Um, but at the same time, one of the projects that I, I undertook, and again, you know, we we part of this developing the standard for the market uh it was a british standard so we we developed it with british standards um and that's still in place today um it's just been through a, a bit of a uh, a bit of a revision but it's still in place today it is the accepted market standard that all that our body shop uh has to prove if they're going to do any any level of insurance insurance work so it has become the de facto standards. There are other things on top of that that the manufacturers insist on, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're talking at the base de facto standard, that is still in place now. And you know, that's for me, that's that's quite a that's quite a proud achievement going back, you know, to those mid two thousand when we developed that. Because as I said to you, it wasn't just about writing a criteria. It was about changing hearts and minds, market acceptance, you know, the whole cultural shift had to change. And that that was that was a big undertaking. But I was just thinking, Adam, as part of that, you mentioned we were talking about safety. One of the things we did when we were, you know, talking about the need for such a standard to ensure safe repair, we uh, we actually repaired two vehicles. Um, hmm. One we one we repaired not badly, but just didn't follow. We followed what would have typically been an old style of repair. What a repairer, not looking at any procedures, would have done. Um, and we did it on the B pillar, right in the centre of the vehicle. Uh, and then we repaired one following manufacturer guidelines and instructions with proper equipment. And we painted them. And you look at the two cars, you wouldn't know the difference. Exactly the same. 
one we crashed we and there's videos of this um you, you can you can see video of this i think it's on youtube um we crashed one same speed crash side impact crash test that's the other one the difference between the badly the the not correctly repaired and, and the correctly repaired one was phenomenal the intrusion level of the b post into the vehicle of that was significantly more you know um the 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 certainly the stresses because we had a dummy in the vehicle as well uh, with all the measurement equipment on the dummy the stresses on the dummy were significantly higher i can't remember exact all the figures but i know that the stresses on the dummy were significantly higher we also know using high speed cameras and, and sensors that the curtain airbag in the badly repaired car didn't deploy as quickly as the one in the good repair so 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 essentially you know the intrusion was a lot more as i said so overall we proved categorically that a vehicle can look okay you can do a reasonable repair but if it isn't following the exact standards in terms of materials joining technology and you have the right skills of somebody doing that job then you're going to compromise safety in the second accident if there is a second accident uh, and that's as relevant today as it was then so in that repair um did you guys determine or deduce that the like welding technique or like the glue technique or something like that was some of the more major things that weren't followed like the old school way would have been you know bolting it in or like riveting it in versus um yeah so so so, the main, so 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 on the on on the b post so you've got the you know the b post so you've got the rear doors they've got the front door you got the post in the middle yep. so so um to replace that b post a lot of repairers in the past may well have just done if it's damaged in the middle they just cut it and put a bit in the actual repair procedure on this vehicle it was a it was a gm it was what what was in europe then it was a voxel vectra what we call the oh. voxel vectra okay. um the actual repair method was no you have to take it out. You have to take a T out. You have to take it out in a T. You have to cut into the roof and cut into the sill. And the piece that goes, so that you make the join at the T point, not, not just there. Now, traditionally, if you didn't know that, often B posts really, if it was damaged in the middle, you'd just make a cut and take the bit out and weld a bit in. Interesting. You can't do that with this because the strength your the strength is completely gone by doing that you have to take the t-section which takes you may take you five hours more um will involve more material more labor time so you might you might cut a corner right because once you put the paint on it you don't know hey guys adam from the podcast i hope you are enjoying today's episode just wanted to ask you a quick favor if the show has brought you value in some way would you mind giving us a review and sharing the show it really helps the show get out there. Also, if you are looking to expand the services that your shop offers and you want to do more than collision work, you should really check out our company, Clarity Coat. Clarity Coat is a peelable paint that allows body shops to offer color changes cheaper than a repaint while still looking like real paint. You can also offer clear protection that has no edges and is sprayed instead of laid. Unlike vinyl and PPF, Clarity Coat can be sanded and polished, so you can give your customer the exact look that they are wanting. If you are looking to expand your shop services, go to claritycode.com and fill out our become an installer form. All right, let's get back to the show. And I know you said that you don't remember the data specifically, but do you think it would be fair to say like this is, we're talking about the difference between like 
getting a concussion versus not getting a concussion um, type of situation is, yeah, um, I mean, say, a side I impact. Remember, I remember we did we had a lot of TV crews at the at the uh, at the the crash facility where we did this and we filmed it and I was interviewed and and I made the mistake I I I made a bit of a mistake where I said you know the one the one in the one in the uh, the 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 uh, the occupant in the um, the driver in the uh, in the badly repaired vehicle would probably be dead. Well, we couldn't mm-hmm. actually say that, but what we could definitely say is the stresses the stresses on that person were significantly higher than the ones that were that were because it because the fact is it doesn't if it's not repaired correctly it doesn't absorb the energy it just crumbles right so the energy goes straight into the car if it's properly paid you'll get more energy absorption so you're not transmitting that energy into the passenger or further into the vehicle and then as well you know and those and if that airbag is not deployed if it's deployed a millisecond later you know it's you know you're not going to have the same cushion on your head so definitely you know, you can't say categorically, um, but without a doubt, the injuries to the person in the poorly repaired vehicle would have been significantly worse than the injuries to the one in the properly repaired vehicle. And I, I don't want to, um, I, I do want to move on to Ibis um, here very quickly, but the reason why this is so interesting to me right now is because in my own family, so I have a six year old son. And um, he's like 45 or 48 pounds or something like that, right? And I find it so interesting that today, in today's age, there is so much data and some very fine lines on when you want to move someone from a five-point harness in a in a mm-hmm. car seat to using the seat belt to using a high back booster. So he was at that age and weight limit where it was like a very gray area between whether or not you can do a high back booster, um, which, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, do you know what I'm referring to when I say high back booster? Okay. I, do. I just didn't know if they called it something over different over in the UK, um, versus just a regular booster seat so that he has the proper height for the seatbelt, but he just doesn't have yep. the same whiplash protection. Right. Yep. Well, as a part of that, what I was looking at is I have an 18 Audi S five and I was like, well, what kind of airbags does he have around him? Because my, for me, I have like freaking airbags everywhere, right? Like I'm, <laughs> if I get into an accident, like it's pretty, pretty much the Michelin man just surrounds me and I'm good to go. Um, but what is his protection level? And from what I could see, it was basically just a curtain airbag that deploys along the whole side of the car, but he doesn't really have anything that kind of envelopes him in his seat. So anyways, it was just interesting where you're, we think now way more about whiplash protection, concussion protection, those types of things for our kids. Whereas when I was a kid, it was basically like, as soon as I could get out of a car seat, I was out of a car seat, right? Like there was no thought to that whatsoever. I mean, I remember I actually got into an accident when I was younger, like, you know, around probably eight years old or whatever. I was nowhere near the height necessary, got into an accident and the seatbelt actually like, strangled me a little bit like it literally cut right across my throat because it just wasn't wasn't the right height but nobody thought any anything of it back then um so it's just very interesting the differences between now and then and, yeah and uh, and, and also just, sorry oh, go ahead. uh i was gonna say and also um i don't know if it's a requirement over here but i think 
U.S. manufacturers just do it anyways because it's a European standard. But now we're starting to think more about pedestrian safety as well. So like pedestrian impacts on the front of a car. How do they how do they go over the top of a hood um, type of thing? Um, So it's very interesting. The differences now between I mean, we're talking about just like a 10, 15 year difference. Yeah, I was talking to um, one of the designers of uh, the the, 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 a guy called Ian Callum, who was the head designer at Jaguar for a number of years. Um, We we know him at Ibis, and um, we did an interview with him a few a few months ago. Uh, And he was he was mentioning you know one of the things they it was I think it was the XK I think don't quote me on that but on one of the cars he designed they designed the first uh, pop up bonnet. So, um, and it was designed very much to achieve a pedestrian safety rating. So you hit the pedestrian, uh, the head, when the head, if the head came to hit the bonnet, the bonnet had a, a pyrotechnic that would flip the bonnet up to leave a oh. gap, to leave, to then leave a gap between the, the, the top of the hood. Sorry. I say bonnet. I said, no, no, no. I, I know what you mean. Hood. Yeah. <laughs> We've so, all watched Top Gear. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what it would do then, it would leave, this pyrotechnic would flip the bonnet up slightly so you'd have a bigger gap between the engine block and the bonnet. So you'd have, the bonnet could flex. So if the head hit, the bonnet had flex rather than the head just hitting the bonnet and, you know, hitting the, the engine block. So, you know, all these little things that, that were developed over time and you talk about, you know, seats and child seat safety, one of the things that I was involved in in Thatcham as well was we 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 started because whiplash was a big problem for the insurers, particularly in the UK. <coughs> Excuse me, they were the the money they were spending out on whiplash claims was yeah. I, I I don't I don't know, but it was a Millions. it was of a fa- it was of a factor of two or three over what they were paying out on uh, on uh, on on material damage claims. So one of the things we embarked on was research into um uh, evaluating seating systems you know so making sure that seats were designed correctly that you know the headrest was close to the back of the head the ergonomics of the seat so if you did it would catch you uh correctly um you know and again just funny stories when you go back to being a youngster you know i remember my parents driving a car and the headrest was right down here so you know if you had an accident you know it would have, i don't know about avoiding whiplash it would have probably you know, cut your head in half, you know, it's so low. But, you know, we learn these things, right? It's all about knowledge and, and 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 learning. And, you know, I think all this that we've discussed, and, you know, we, we can discuss a lot more, but, you know, all this knowledge and learning is really what then drove me into, into IBIS, right? Because that's where the next stage of what I've learned in my career and what I've been involved in, I wanted to share that or provide a platform for sharing all that type of knowledge no i i mean you did a a great little roll into that um it's almost like you've done this before (laughs) yeah Um, anybody anybody think adam i ran an events uh an international events company right who uh, yeah who present who present things on stage you know so uh how did you come across ibis like you're at thatcham i'm assuming you're rolling into ibis at that point so what does that transition look i had like? a couple of i had a couple of other roles uh, after thatcham um, okay uh, i worked um uh, i was responsible for global product management a company called outer or solera as you may know it in the u.s 
big um, a big what's traditionally known as an estimating business. They do a lot more than that now. They're a much bigger, you know, they uh, they do a lot more solutions than, than than that. But traditionally, that's probably what they were known for. So I spent um, I spent five years there running their international product development and data development, um, and then I spent a couple of years. Um, I ran, I headed up the, the body shop uh, association, um, the trade association in the UK for body shops. So I was uh, on the board of directors there uh, for a couple of years. Um, and basically there was a couple of associations in the UK representing body shops. My job was to bring it all together, smash it together, create one brand new uh, representative body for the body repair industry, which is, which is what I did. And then... That was the time then really I sort of rolled in, into Ibis. I'd known the two founders of Ibis, David and Chris. I'd known them for a, a couple of years. Uh, well, quite a few years, not a couple of years, maybe about 10 years before that. Oh, wow. And uh, and I'd been to Ibis events um, in my role at Thatcher and, you know, in Solera, et cetera. I'd been to Ibis events, so I knew what it was all about. Uh, and I started to, uh, first of all, before I even, you know, made a more permanent move to Ibis, I... I started to work with the team there in terms of moderating some of the conferences. So I'd take a certain session, I'd go on stage because of my knowledge, you know, I'd question a group of people, I'd make, maybe make a presentation. So I started to work in a, a more consultative way. And then we go back to sort of, um, if we go back to 2017, um, David, David Young, one of the founders of Iris, approached me and said, look, you know, we want to change the direction of the business. Um, do you want to come and join us and, and lead the next um, the next stage of the development? And uh, I uh, I almost bit his hand off because it was it was everything I wanted, right? It was it was all my knowledge, it was all the industry, it was all the technical, it was all that role, but it was creating something taking something forward again in terms of communicate, sharing that and, and creating platforms to share that and putting people together and networking people and making the industry, trying to make the industry better and stronger. So, you know, it appealed to me on so many levels. Mm. Is, <clears throat> I want to, I, I mean, I, I obviously want to talk a little bit about the past of IBIS, but currently in the US, there is a huge gap, huge need for younger techs. Um, is this something that you guys are experiencing or hearing from? Yes. Um, it's what's a very interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, you have a, you have a pulse on what's happening globally, not just in one yeah. market over another one. Yeah. Um, is there something that you are doing to help out these guys um, when it comes to figuring out what they need to do to um, get some of this younger talent in the doors. Is there any movements that you guys are doing? Yeah. So there's, there's the, first of all, I'd say, look, this isn't an easy nut to crack, right? This is this is something that's been neglected for a long time, and we, we're not going to solve it overnight. Um, but we will be able to solve it if we work together. And what we've what we've seen, and this Adam, this has been a this is a hot topic, whether you're Europe, the US, or wherever you are. The first thing is, it's not just about skills. We were talking a few years ago, we can't get the skilled people. We've got an even bigger problem now, we just can't get the people. So even if, <laughs> yeah, we... even if you know, we've got, we've got training centers maybe, and we can't just get the people in them to train them. To, so, we, you know, we, we need to, you know, it's even more fundamental than that. So 
So it's a big job. Uh, and what we what we try and do, what we've tried to do, um, and, you know, we need to do more with this. You know, by, by no means am I we you know we we just crack the surface of it. But what we try to do is, given where we where people we know around the world and what we've heard them say and what initiatives we've tried to bring them together. So I'll give you an example. Um, we um, at IBC USA this year in in May. Um, we we heard at the event about the what is the collision engineering program that's been supported by um, it, it's like a it, it's like a brand new program. It's you, you become a professional collision engineer. It's sponsored by Enterprise, who've got together with uh, a, a training organisation, a, a, um, an educator. I, I forget the name now. My apologies. Um, like we go to so many, you know, we, we involve so many people. I can't remember all the names, but this initiative is 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 really supported by Enterprise, and we had them on stage to talk about this initiative. Uh, and I mentioned this. I was in Frankfurt um, uh, Auto Mechanica a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned this, and somebody there said, "Wow, that's really interesting in this market because we've got the same problem. What are they doing? What is it? What's it? so then we, we you know we share knowledge." Um, and again, we'll bring people from the U.S. to the Global Summit, where we have 30 different 30 different nations there. You know, from South Africa, from the Netherlands, you know, from China, from Japan, and it, just sharing this knowledge because it's not. You made a point earlier. You know, it's not so easy to find out about events or information. There's a lot out there, but to find specific things you want to know about is not so easy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we see it as very much our role to facilitate that and to to help that. And it is it is an on, it is an ongoing topic. And I think <clears throat> part of that is you know we we do a lot of work with um, the women's industry network in the USA with Tanya and the team there. Uh, when you know having the female element encouraging that side of our industry um so yeah it, it's a it's a constant it's a constant theme uh and probably one of the things we've spoken about most this year is we've moved away from saying from, from discussing look we, we need more talent we need good training centers you know we need to we need to advertise the industry better what we've moved to a more of a discussion about is in the businesses we have, have we got good leaders and are those businesses attractive? Is it a good place to, is it attractive to somebody who wants to come in? You know, are the features there in the leadership and management and do they have the capability to attract and then nurture this talent? And we know we get a lot of attrition because there isn't. Uh, and we've got, you know, we're competing. This industry is competing with, you know, Apple, Amazon. You know, the, the world is the world is a bigger place now. We're we're not just competing with the shop down the road, right? Um, so we have to we have to change the way we lead the business and manage the business and the way it provides for, you know, a good a, a working environment that a young person today wants to work for. And we're, yeah. and we're a way off that, right? I think some people are doing it great, doing it well. Certainly some of the bigger MSOs are starting to really get into that and cre they're creating their own bench of people because that's the only way they can do it. But, you know, as a general industry, we are still, we're still a way off. Yeah, 
you had mentioned earlier, like right at the start of the podcast, how in the early 80s, you know, it wasn't something that was celebrated to go into the service industry. And what's so interesting about you talking about this and, and what you're saying is this is coming up. What you're saying about good leadership, good management comes up almost every single episode. And we're talking to some people that are very high up in the industry. Um, and it's almost, it's just a reoccurring theme. And <clears throat> one of the things that we've talked about previously is I'm sure you guys probably had this over there, but you know, in the, there's almost zero shop classes in high school, um, or, uh, yeah. you guys call it primary school, I think. Yeah. yeah um, yeah. uh, there's, there's almost zero shop class because the, the it's not, it's frowned upon. Right. And I think that in the U S at least you're going to see a big comeback of, um, having shop class back in high school because you're basically we we're we're starting to redact and remove that saying of like going into the service injury industry any of them is somehow a lesser form of going into business or technology or whatever because currently what's happening in the u.s is um some of these a, a lot of trades you're making just as much money as you are as a doctor yeah, yeah. easily and so there we're removing that stigma here but um i i've actually asked this question to a lot of other guys on the podcast and i'll ask you it because i'd be interested to see if you think it would work in other markets but i have advocated and put out the idea of having apprenticeships program apprenticeship programs in shops come um uh, and doing that instead of doing some sort of formal education and everything like that because i went through um, college and did a diesel technology program when uh, that's what I studied in college and became a diesel mechanic, right? Well, the problem that I've heard from lots of other shop owners and people in this kind of industry is, well, great. You went to college, but it doesn't, it didn't teach you anything about actual repair um, processes. So we still have to pour a ton of time and resources into you to get you to the point where you need to go. And my suggestion to that is, well, just stop, just just have a good working environment and then figure out a way to have a good apprenticeship program. What's, what is your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. And um, certainly in the UK market, the apprenticeship program is quite strong oh. um, for, for body repair. Um, the, there is several routes. Um, and again, uh, you know, when I used to work at Thatcham and they still doing it today, I've just actually seen, Yesterday, I think on on LinkedIn, you know, they they've got their next cohort coming in of of apprenticeship programs, and they're very much they train in the training centre uh, at Thatcham, and then uh, they're obviously out in their place of work with their employer, um, learning that learning the skills. Um, so there are there are those programs in certain markets, um, but again, I think as I said earlier, you know, the, the the bigger the bigger certainly some of the MSOs. They they're doing that right. They when I say creating their own bench, that's what they're doing. They they may be getting motivated, but let's say unqualified people, uh, and they're making them great technicians. Yeah, um, it's just but, a you know. But Adam, look, you know, we, we 
you've got to it, that's why it comes down to leadership you've you've got to be you've got to see the future right it's not you, you know you're not going it's not it, you're not going to make hay today with that right it's an investment for the future you know and you, there's so many people i'm too busy to do it or you know can't afford to do it well you know maybe you can't afford not to because in a few years you ain't going to have anybody to repair the cars so there's a mindset change that still needs to happen it's moving some of the more forward thinking people are doing it for sure but i still think there's a way to go right there's a still a way to go about how we how we make it more more understood across the industry and what uh, and what are the factors that make it a uh, 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 a problem that we can solve by by this this leadership and this management foresight well you just have to do another hearts and minds campaign easy <laughs> <laughs> and you just have to do it globally like what's so hard about that <laughs> yeah um okay so employment or um employee pool is you know one major issue that you guys are seeing across the um, multiple different industries but I'm just curious, is there another um, two or three spot that most people are talking about as being a problem in, yeah, you know, yeah. globally or specific markets? I, I, you know, the, the, the thing, the thing that's, the thing that's changing, the things that's changing the industry is obviously going to be um, um, the biggest change we've seen for generations in terms of the way vehicles are propelled, right? We've had the internal combustion engine for God knows how many years. A long time. <laughs> a long time. You know, we're moving. You know, we're, we're moving to electrical power. That's a big shift, right? That's a big shift. So, you know, you could say, well, look, the industry's coped cope with change before. Uh, we'll cope with it again, and I'm sure that's the case. However, we have to accept that we, you know, we need to skill up. We need to be prepared to research, and we need to be prepared to change the way we work. If we do that, we'll be okay, right? We can cope with change. That's we have to be flexible, you know. Uh, I think is it Charles Charles Darwin that said it's the, the survive. It's the, it's not the fittest or the strongest. It's the uh, it's the the species that has the best ability to adapt. That is the, is is the, the one that will survive, and that's what we need to do. So if we go back to electric electrical propulsion, right? So you know this is where you know, you're dealing with, and I did a presentation on this in in Frankfurt a couple of weeks ago. You're dealing with high voltage lithium-ion battery. You know, if you look at the early sort of um, hybrid vehicles, you know, the Toyota Prius, that sort of stuff. If you look at the batteries now, even over that sort of ten, let's say that ten-year period when that sort of Prius came in, and and then we had the plug-in. Now we got the total electric vehicle. You know, the technology in that battery is phenomenal, right? And the power they can produce is. You know, nobody talks about now, you know, no power or range or anything like that. We seem to have solved that because, you know, these things are so, you know, the, the battery technology is, is, is amazing. However, you know, it is a massive, massive issue because remember just simple things practically that we talk about in the shop. You know, a, a, um, you've got that such high voltage in that vehicle and remember it's not like you it's not like you it's not the 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 battery is not it's not working like your electricity system in your home you know it's not an ac current it's dc right so so if you if you don't dis disconnect it properly you have any issues and you get electric shock if you do that at home right you put your screw 
don't do this, but you know, <laughs> it, you, you you know, it, it throws you back, right? The, the current throws you back. Not with DC, right? You know, it attracts you to the, it, pulls you in, pulls you to the, it pulls you to the vehicle. So, you know, your mate in the workshop, that happens to him. What's your reaction? You go and grind and grab him. Then you're in the chain. Then, so, you know, you, you things like proper rubber, you know, hooks to pull people, all the safety equipment, proper procedures to um, disconnect the vehicle, safe storage of batteries. You know, the idea of again, you, you, we've had vehicles in our workshops for you know years and years and years. And when you know, if you have a fire in a vehicle. It's an internal combustion engine vehicle. It's fuel, fire brigade, put it out. It's not so easy with lithium iron. It just burns and burns and burns, yeah. right? So, you know, if you've got, you know, I've had some of the more forward-thinking repairers. They've if they've got a lot of EV vehicles in their in their shop at night, um, which they will have if you know it's a two-week repair. They've installed all sorts of thermal imagery to alert them if the if there's heating issues. So they can get it straight away as the shop the shop could go in in in, in minutes yeah so you, you know you're, you're in a completely different world here the space you need to repair and where uh, such a vehicle and where you store the battery uh if it's a total loss the disposal of the battery you know there's a whole mix coming in that you know that that is a hot topic that that we need to address like i say the forward i'm sure the bigger forward thinking shops are onto this they're investing, they know what to do. But as we know, not everybody is like that. And it, it is very much a hot topic right now. Yeah. Um, on a previous episode, we had Sarah DeCarmen on from, um, I don't remember what the name of the business is, my apologies, but uh, she is a basically a junkyard, but for specifically just Porsche parts, and that's it. Okay. And this is actually something that we kind of got into is – you know, she's going to have, um, she's not going to have to worry about Taycan parts for quite some time. She can, she could probably just focus on just older Porsche parts and be just fine. But she said it is something that we have to think about because there's a whole different kind of way of storing and safety guidelines for storing lithium ion batteries or even disassembling them that, I mean, can yep. you imagine how scary it would be to walk into a warehouse and you just see rows of tie can size lithium ion batteries. Yikes. And if that were to go off, like you have your off gassing problems, like all of that, like, yeesh, like that's just a whole different animal to try and tackle because oh, what, do you have any idea how, what, what the weight on one of those batteries is by chance? Uh, just kind of off the top of your head. I mean, it's gotta no, be significant. No, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's significant weight of the vehicle. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like, you're only going to be able to stack like three, four of those high. And that's, I mean, that's it. Like you just literally would not be able to stack it any higher than that because what, what are, what kind of, um, shelving are you going to get? That's going to be able to hold up more than that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just a, it's, it's a whole slew of different problems, but probably one of the, well, I was going to say one of the good things is that there is a slow roll on of acceptance to electric vehicles. So you almost just kind of have this gentle learning curve, but uh, I don't know sure what it's, if uh, Europe is doing this yet, but um, California and there's some other states are mandating that every vehicle sold in 
this um, in California by 2030 has to be an electric vehicle. Yeah, well, there's sim- similar similar dictates coming out all over Europe, different countries, but pretty much on those lines. Yeah, similar lines. Yeah. So your gentle learning curve is all of a sudden going to go away on a yeah it's just gonna it's just gonna spike you're gonna have to figure it out very shortly and unfortunately what's probably going to happen is there's probably going to be a lot of shop fires that happen a lot of not great repairs and in order for mandates and stuff like that to happen hopefully we figure it out ahead of time but i mean history tends to repeat itself unfortunately i mean i saw i saw um uh, we we do we do a, a part of Ibis. We we have a very good relationship with Ford. Uh, and a few months ago, did they launched was it the F one fifty, the Lightning, the the electric? Uh, yep. that, is is that is that the is that's like the number one selling truck or something in the US? Isn't it or one of the top sellers? And yep. they were saying, you know, even before that was launched, they got about two hundred thousand pre orders for it. Yeah, which is really surprising. Um... So yes, the F-150 is the best-selling pickup in the United States. Um, But it's really surprising to me that the Lightning had as much acceptance as it did because probably one of the worst moves that Ford has done in the last couple of years, in my opinion, is they came out with an electric version of the Mustang, which was, and it was a crossover. And I was like, everyone's like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, this isn't, it's not, it's not even remotely the same thing. Now, the F-150, it, it's just surprising that the F-150 was accepted as much as the electric version, the Lightning, was accepted as much as it was. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Like, it's it it, it got a bunch of orders. Um, maybe you can probably attribute a lot of that success to the Rivian. Um, do you guys have the Rivian over there as well? I don't think no? so. I don't think so. Um, the Rivian was, you know, it's it's basically kind of like Tesla, right? Like, it's its, its own little company. And the first vehicle they came out with was an electric truck, and it just smashed it. I mean, they they did awesome with the advertising, the market that they were going after, and everything like like. But they can't build it nearly as fast as Ford can. Like, it's not even. It's like David versus Goliath type thing. Um, so I think there was a lot of demand for the Rivian, and I think that might have bled over to the F one fifty Lightning, um, mm-hmm. helping it with its success. But regardless, I, I, still, there's going to be lots of different learning curves to the repair part of things. And again, unfortunately, I think it's just going to have to come from negative lessons instead of, you know, preactively or proactively figuring it out yeah. ahead of time. Um, so, I, I mean, we've kind of already gone an hour, but I, what I'd really like to ask you, Jason, is if someone wanted to be a part of Ibis or, you know, what is the, one of the main things that I get from people or people talk about when they're joining um, or going to conferences or whatever is, you know, what is it in for me? Like what, what would I get out of it? Um, I think you've made some pretty strong points as to why someone would want to do this, but you know, what do you tell people that um, have objections to it? uh, To you? Well, it's quite simple. It's quite simple. We are the only organization who do this stuff globally. Huh. Okay. End of. So, so, <laughs> so you come, you, you, you come to our, you come to an event with us, you will learn from other markets. You will learn about what others are doing, not just from your home market. Um, and that is, 
that's how we get better, right? We don't. We have to cast our net wider to learn about new, new, new ways of doing things or new relationships, meeting new people, whatever that is, new knowledge from a wider. You know, we're a glo- You know, we're a global community now, uh, and that's what you get at Ibis. Um, and, and my team have that know-how and knowledge as well, and we will also bring that to the stage when we're questioning and interviewing people in local markets, we will ask the questions that we learn from elsewhere. So this isn't about going through the motions. IBIS is about delivering a difference using global knowledge, but giving it that local focus to those people that are listening to learn more. And I think that's quite a unique um, well, I know it's unique because I haven't seen it anywhere else. Um, we will continue to do that. Uh, and I think that's that's the biggest thing I could say, Adam, about come and join us. Um, uh, and you can have some fun as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question. And this is something that the reason why I'm asking this is from personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you find that the people that you come across in the U.S. are willing or open to hearing about um, people from other countries and how they do things? Or do you find definitely, that they're a little bit more narrow-minded? No, definitely. And I, t- and I, I that may have been the case in the past. I, I, I'm not so sure, but definitely not the case now. And I've got, I've got, I've got empirical data that, that I can tell you that that's not the case because our mm. biggest growing contingent at our global summit that happens in Europe are people from the U S interesting that is actually very interesting because um yeah I, I would have thought it was the exact opposite and that's not to really you know i'm not trying to crap on our u.s listeners or anything like that but I, it's just surprising to me that normally we're not that open-minded to you know the way that other countries and stuff like that do things so it's interesting that the auto body industry is a little bit different so, in that so, certainly certainly with the demographic of people that we do that's not the case and that's and that and that's ch- and that's changed that's changed a lot and like I say, you know, it is the biggest growth participation in what we do globally is from from the U.S. Awesome. Uh, so, Jason, if someone wanted to find out more information about Ibis or join or anything like that, um, where can they go? Where can they find out more information? So they can go to ibisworldwide.com. So www.ibisworldwide.com. That's our web page. You can find all the information on there. Uh, or they can please send me an email. Um, you can get, I'm quite easy to get hold of. My email address is jason at ibisworldwide.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from anybody who's interested. And um, yeah, we can work together and uh, keep, uh, keep, it ta- keep taking the industry forward. Perfect. Well, thank you, Jason, for your time today. Really do appreciate it. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, so if you guys want to go and check them out, www.ibisworldwide.com. Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Um, go check it out. Go see what they're about. And um, yeah, hopefully we get to have you on in the future and we can get some updates on the industry. You've been listening to the Auto Body Podcast presented by Clarity Code. Our passion is to talk to and about anyone in the industry from painters, body guys, manufacturers, and anyone in between. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review, and we'll be back soon 
But in the meantime, visit us at ClarityCoat.com and find us on Facebook and YouTube at Clarity Coat. See you next time on the Auto Body Podcast.